0: All right, so um, today we are in the fifth week of our series, Doomed to Repeat, okay? And we've been talking about what happens when we get in this cycle of doing the same stuff over and over again that seems to keep us in bondage all the time, and how do we break free and move forward? How many of you guys are for breaking free and moving forward? Come on. Yeah, right? right. I get tired of staying in that loop of the past. I have had things in my life all through the years that I've had to overcome. A lot of things that I've wrestled with, Uh, a lot of sins that have been um, struggles for me in my life. I I was caught in a loop of anger for years. I was an angry guy. When Mary married me, she married an angry guy. I'm I'm glad to say I'm not that same guy anymore because God taught me how to step out of that loop. Now, am I sin free? No, absolutely not. I've got more strongholds that God's got to break in my life so that I can move forward. I've got more ways that I think, more things that I do that I need God to help me push past, right? Right? All of us, no matter how far along you are in the journey, you are going to have things in your life that you need God's help to get out of that destructive cycle, amen? But you know what? God gives us the power. He gives us the strength. Most of the time, here's what happens. We have one thing in our life that we think, man, if I could just get this one thing fixed, I'd be all right, right? How many of you have something in your life that you feel like is a big thing that if you could get over it, It would really be a game changer. Raise your hand. All right? That's like the majority of us. But here's the thing. Once you get over that thing, you'll be able to see the other thing that you've been missing all this time. And you go, oh, shoot, i got to get over that thing now. Right? So this is just a pattern. In our life of love, following Christ, it's always about moving forward, stepping out. Discipleship is a journey, not a destination. We just keep going. We keep moving. God keeps helping us, right? And so that's how it works. And so um, I was thinking about the Exodus story because, remember, we're kind of working backward. Our first week, we talked about Joshua at the edge of the promised land, right? And now we're kind of working back. This week, we're gonna be talking about what happens to the Israelites right after they leave Egypt and start their 40-year journey through the desert. And so, um, as I was studying for this, though, I read a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse one. So if you got your Bible, turn there. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, one And by the way, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. That's usually what we go with on Sunday mornings is New Living Translation. It says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. Baptism was a common concept for them, right? Baptism represented belonging to or identifying with something. So so what Paul's saying here, he's actually making a case for baptism. He's saying when the people followed Moses through the parted sea, they were following him through the waters. You see how this is going? See what Paul's doing? Nice job, Paul. And so he's following through the waters Right, And then he says, all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. To which we say, huh, wow, that's interesting. So you remember in this story, if, you, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, there's this place where the Israelites get to a spot where there's no water to drink. And God tells Moses to do what? He says, strike the rock. And when he struck the rock, what happens? Water comes out of it. There's actually a place in Israel where you can still see a split rock with a spring that flows out of it. It's kind of neat, right? And so so this split rock moment is when God shows up in this water is this provision that followed them through the desert. Now, did the rock physically move? No, but there's another instance where they get to a place where there's no water, and God says to Moses, Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock, does he? He hits the rock. And and here's here's the issue with that, because I used to always think, man, that's pretty severe that God doesn't let Moses see the promised land because he hits a rock instead of talking to the rock, right? Like that sounds pretty extreme. But if we look at what Paul says about the rock, the rock that, that is with them in the desert is a type of Christ. How many times did Jesus need to be struck? One time. He didn't need to strike Jesus more than one time. Everything that they needed happened in the moment that Christ was struck, right? And then from there, you speak and the Spirit causes life to flow right and so so the idea here is that as Paul's picked up on and as Paul's telling us hey the rock is a type of Christ the rock is a type of the spirit's life and action in us so when Christ was struck it opened a gateway for the spirit to flow in our lives and then from then on all we have to do is ask and the water flows it's just cool right so so as we process this as we look at this it's like oh man everywhere you look in scripture it's about Jesus When you come to this church I want you to hear about Jesus why because he's the most important thing There isn't anything else the entire narrative of scripture is all about Jesus Because he's the game changer. He's the one that makes a difference. He makes a difference for you. He makes a difference for me. He changes everything. And so we see Jesus throughout the scriptures. Even in this account, 3,000 years before Jesus even shows up on the scene, we have a picture of Jesus in the wilderness with the Israelites. So cool. So turn now to Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to look at this thing. Exodus 14, verse one, it says, then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp by pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal-zaphon. All right, so, so if you were to look at a map and I'm gonna have Daniel put a map up on the screen, this is where the Israelites camped, right here. So they come out of Egypt up at the top. They walk through the peninsula down to this little spot. From a military standpoint, this is a terrible location to stage your people, right? He's literally boxed the children of Israel in on purpose. So the location, God has them go all the way down. Now, Israel is up in here. And so that's where they're supposed to be going, but God intentionally sends them to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula and boxes them in. This doesn't make sense from a military standpoint, does it? Who would do that? God. Only God. Nobody else would choose to do it this way, but that's what God does. Verse 3, it says, Then Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. So he's literally, he's baiting Pharaoh because his goal is to stop Pharaoh from stopping his people. His goal is that he would have glory, right? And so he's trying to make a point to all the Egyptians, to all the world surrounding that God gets the glory, amen? And so that's what happens. The Pharaoh gets word that these Israelites have kind of traveled down the Sinai Peninsula and they're stuck at the bottom. And he's like, these morons. And at the same time, he's thinking, I've lost my entire labor force. I need some workers. I just let 2.2 million free laborers go. That was a bad idea. I'm going to go get them. Right? And so let's look at what happens. So uh. Verse 4, and once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. Now, can I just pause for a second? Because this has given rise to a lot of um, confusion and angst among people who wrestle with belief, okay? Because what we read here is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so the idea is, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart knowing that he's going to punish him for having a hard heart. And ultimately, his hard heart would lead to his death, right? So why does God do that? Because scripture is very clear that that's exactly what he does. He hardens his heart. So here's what we have to do. We got to back up on the text in order to find out what's going on here, okay? So when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, he shows up, and the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the first five plagues, every time you read about a hard heart, you read Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? Keeps going. So Pharaoh has decided that he's going to fight against God. He's made the decision that he's going to be resistant. He's going to be rebellious. He's going to create problems for God and for God's people as much as it depends on him. Now, this idea of hardening the heart is, is this idea that God is helping Pharaoh do what he'd already set his mind to do. You're going you're to harden your heart? I'll make it easy for you. Right? You're going to be rebellious? All right, I'll make it easy for you to rebel. That way, it facilitates what I'm trying to do. So no matter if you harden your heart or don't harden your heart, it's going to help facilitate my plan. Right? Because God is sovereign. God oversees everything. God's not surprised by anything. God has given man a choice. And here's the coolest thing about God. Only God could be sovereign enough that he could create man with a free will and not be threatened, right? Like God designs man and he says, all right, I'm going to put you in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to give you a choice. And the whole idea of love is predicated on choice. And I'm going to stick you right here. And this is what we're going to do. I'm not worried about the outcome because I'm God and I'm sovereign. And what I want to happen, I let happen. It's how I work, right? Isn't that cool? All right, so so as we go through this, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And then God finally says, okay, I will harden your heart too. I'll let you be that way. So let's look at the second part of verse 4. It says, I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. So what's God's plan? To display his glory. Come on, audience participation. God's plan is to display his Right, through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Now, here's here's the thing. What is glory? Glory is not something that we give to God. Glory is something that God possesses that we reveal. Does that make sense? Let me let me put it to you this way. Um, Daniel, put up that picture that, that I have of the Grand Canyon. That's cool looking, right? It's glorious. I mean, can you imagine JB just got back from the Grand Canyon? And when you're standing on the edge of that thing looking out, you're like, are you kidding me? Right? It's just, it's unbelievable. Now, Whether JB were to see that or not, it would be glorious. It is not dependent on somebody seeing it to make it glorious. It is a part of what it is. It's a part of... It's being. It's just glorious. God, on a much higher level, a much more transcendent level, is glorious. He doesn't need man to recognize his glory in order for him to be glorious. He's glorious. He's awesome. He's God. And here's the thing. He doesn't need us to stroke his ego to make him feel better about himself. And that's why we worship. God is perfectly okay, completely self-fulfilled. He needs nothing from anyone because he's God. But when we give God glory, it does something in us. If you've ever stood on the edge of the ocean and felt really small, the glory of the ocean is doing its job. If you've ever stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked out and went, wow glory is doing its job it's more about what it does in us when we exalt god and recognize his glory than what it does for god because god doesn't need it and so matter of fact in this passage in part b of verse four he says exactly what the glory is for he says i have planned this in order to display my glory through pharaoh and his whole army after this the egyptians will know that i am the lord what's the point of demonstrating his glory to prove it to the Egyptians, because the Egyptians are worshiping Pharaoh. They're saying Pharaoh's a god, Pharaoh's a god, the son's a god. Frogs are gods, cows are gods. All of these things are gods. Matter of fact, all of the plagues of Israel are a direct in your face to show that God is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And so, so what he's doing is he's demonstrating to Egypt, and to Israel, that he is sufficient. He's glorious. He's awesome. He's everything. You don't need anything else in addition. This is the point, okay? So as we're looking at this, it's just really, really cool to see how God is moving. Let's look at verse 5. It says, when word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds what have we done letting all those israelite slaves get away they asked okay so so they're looking at this thing and they're saying that was a stupid decision we got to retract what are people going to think if they see that god you know pharaoh being quote unquote god has let all of these people go why doesn't he just retain them as his subservient race. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Now let's look at verse six. It says, so Pharaoh harnessed his chariots and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt. So 600 of the best chariots and then all the rest of the chariots. So these are the elite chariots, but then there's a whole host of other chariots that go along with them too. And it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. I love that. Can you see the the Israelites leaving, fists raised in defiance? Yeah, take that, right? They're just, they're like, and God has just plowed the way to the point, like last week we shared about the fact that when they're on their way out, they're literally collecting gold from people. Like, hey, give me your gold, right here, you know, and, and, and they, they walk out incredibly enriched with all of this gold. Here's the ironic thing. In just a few chapters more, we read that they're on the edge of the mountain of God and they take all the gold that God has given them and they turn it into an idol calf to worship. Wow. And so here we have these guys shaking their fists defiantly at the Egyptians as they leave. And it says, the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pi hahiroth across from Baal-Zaphan. So, so here we have this crazy thing happening because what, what we see is the Israelites, they were content, To come up against the roadblock, right? Because they've been enslaved for 400 years, and after being enslaved for for 400 years, it's not a bad thing to have a beach day or two, right? So these guys show up on the edge of the Red Sea. I can imagine that as they're camped out, they're you know they're they're clapping, they're playing in the water, they're enjoying themselves. The kids are running around. It's a great time when you've been beaten and enslaved for 400 years, and now you got a beach day. I ain't complaining. Right, And so that's what happens is these, these guys, they're, so they're just content. They're down there and they're enjoying themselves until all of a sudden they hear this thunderous roar of horse hooves and chariot wheels. They see a dust cloud starting to form in the distance. And they hear the war cries of the Egyptian army coming after them. Egypt is the superpower of the known world at this point. Thanks to Joseph, thanks to God's people, right? because they're able to procure all the land around them, even the Egyptians' land, except for the priests, because of Joseph's strategic planning against famine. And so God's people had actually made Egypt into a superpower that ruled the region. And so they're just, they're dominating everybody. And now here are these slaves on the edge of the sea, and they hear the thunder of of the Egyptian army coming after them. Can you imagine what they must have been thinking? Oh, shoot. Right? And, and we find out what they're thinking. But let me, just for perspective, PBS, about seven years ago or so, they did on uh, on Nova, they did this thing where they took um, some of the paintings and frescoes and reliefs of the chariots from this era, and they, they um, recreated a chariot they rebuilt two chariots and they brought in all these engineers and horse trainers and and uh and specialists from the military and they recreated this thing and they said that it was unbelievable they equated it to a 1930s automobile that's how technologically advanced it was. They had spoked wheels, they had leaf springs to help protect the soldiers against shock. They had, they, had con, they had concave mirrors so that they could look behind them and see what was going on behind them. They had armor that was built in that was made of rawhide and it was so strong that it was always at least three thick and there was no way that a bow and arrow could penetrate it. The way that they had designed it, they had two soldiers, one was a driver, an archer, Another one was the one with the shield as a protector, and they were kind of staving off. And the idea was the highest award that you could get as an Egyptian chariot driver was you got a um, a, a medallion with a fly on it. And you think, wow, that's not really that impressive, is it? Right? But the idea was that the fly was just... How many of you have been on a picnic and the flies are just—they're on your food, they're everywhere. They just come and and you swat at them and they're gone. And you—it's hard to kill a fly, isn't it? And that was the idea with these chariot drivers is they would just come in and use their speed and they just come around and dart in and hack and then leave and then dart in and chop at people and then leave. And the whole way that this was designed was this quick, furious warfare. And it almost felt like, man, you can't stop these guys. They're just constant. Bam, bam, bam. And there's 600 of them plus all the others. And this is a formidable, formidable army. It's terrifying. And so, so we, we read on. Uh, verse 10, it says, As Pharaoh approached the people of Israel, looked up and panicked. Yeah. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord. I love this. That's their first instinct, right? And that should always be our first instinct is to cry out to the Lord. But listen, in the same breath, what they do. And they said to Moses, it's literally the same sentence. It says, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Do you hear this? So they don't even give God the chance to respond. They immediately, after they don't get an answer from God in the first 16 seconds, they immediately say, Moses. This is your problem, man. How many of you are guilty of that? When you don't feel God moving quick enough, you want to move to a man to get a decision? I don't mean a man like a, a guy. I mean like man or a woman, another human. You look to them for the answers. Sometimes in marriage, it's easy to do that, to look to our spouse for the answer to whatever problem we're going through. And you know what? We've got to lean on God because he is the solution to our problem. And no matter what your spouse is doing or no matter what your spouse is capable of, God is your answer. He always has been. He always will be. Some of you are in in marriages that are supportive and loving and strong and healthy. That's awesome. Work together to go to God. Some of you are in marriages that are destructive and chaotic and problematic. And guess what? God is still enough. And he's still the one you look to, and he's still the one that has the answers, even in your most trying times. And so uh, it's interesting to me how these guys leverage their sarcastic wit, and they say, they say, did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Like they're mocking Moses. Moses. You brought us out to the desert. What? Don't you think that they could probably bury us in Egypt just as well? And so this is, this is kind of the insult that they, that they leverage against him. And he says, and uh, they say again, verse 12, didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? First of all, they didn't say that to Moses. As a matter of fact, for 400 years, they've been crying out, God, please save us from slavery. And then God brings a deliverer, and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. You know, it's interesting to me because fear will cause you to think delusional thoughts about your past. Let me say that again. Fear will cause you to think delusional thoughts about your past. You'll look back at your past and you'll paint all these beautiful pictures about how awesome it was. Man, when I was back in that lifestyle, it was so great. Everything was awesome. I enjoyed it so much. And we leave all the bad parts out, don't we? We're just, we're just recreating in our mind, building up the sin, the slavery, the, the, the destruction that kept us in bondage for years. And all we're focusing on is the fun times, the good times, the neat things. How insulting to God that we do that, right? How insulting to God that we do that. And how devastating to us that we do that. And so as we look at the Israelites kind of fantasizing about their their slavery, we pick up now in verse 13. It says, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. How come Moses, while everybody else is panicking can say, don't be afraid, stay calm because he's already been there. He's already experienced fear face to face. He's already faced Pharaoh, right? He stood before Pharaoh. He watched as Pharaoh threatened his life. He stood before God at a burning bush and talked his way, tried to talk his way out of doing what God wanted him to do, didn't he? He says, hey, Moses, you're the deliverer of the people of Israel. It's going to be great. And Moses like, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. And God says, but Moses, I am. And he says, but I stutter. He says, I am. And he says, I'm afraid. And God says, I am. And he says, but wait, what if nobody goes with me? God says, I am. So it's this whole thing of God just instilling this in Moses and showing it to Moses. And Moses going through this hard face-to-face encounter with Pharaoh, Over and over and over, more than 10 times, he has to stand before Pharaoh and look down the barrel at this guy that is terrifying, the most powerful person in the world at the time, Pharaoh. And he has to stand in his court and look at him and say, you need to let God's people go. You need to let God's people go. And over and over and over, Pharaoh says, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, crush you. You come back in this courtroom again, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to destroy you. Moses, you don't realize how small you are by comparison to me. Who do you think you are? What are you going to do with a bunch of slaves? Let me tell you how small you are. Right? And Moses is like, I just got to keep remembering how big God is. Because no matter how small I am or how small you think I am, as long as God is with me, I have nothing to fear. That's what I want us to get a hold of today. God is faithful because of who He is. It's just His presence, it's His power, it's Him. He is enough. He's bigger than anything that we face. And when He is with you, you have the victory. And so Moses knows that as he sees the army of Egypt bearing down on the people. He's like, All right, that's all right. I'm not worried. Guys, don't be afraid. Stay calm. Everything's all right. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that seem like an irresponsible response for a leader? Shouldn't Moses have been standing on a rock yelling, all right, everybody, man your battle positions. Grab At least there's 2.2 million of us. They only have 600 chariots, so we could probably do some damage. But he doesn't. He says, don't be afraid. Stay calm. Don't be afraid. Stay calm. And so um, I want to show you guys a quick video um, about a song that you're familiar with uh, called Your Love Defends Us. I just want you to hear the backstory for this song.
1: I recently got back from like a month vacation with my family. We were in Europe and my wife remarked about how less I was on my phone, which is always encouraging and and a bit convicting because it makes you realize, man, maybe I'm on my phone too much at home. But I think part of it was just the time change because it was so early in the States that by the time people were awake, it was always halfway through the day. And I'd been present with my family, I'd been still. And uh, I realized There's some things that haven't changed uh, in the church. Some things that haven't changed in terms of challenges we face as Christians and the way that our faith intersects with the world that we live in. But one thing that has changed is we are increasingly less and less capable of being still. The world has become more and more focused on productivity and doing. So much that you might almost say that we should not call ourselves human beings anymore. We should just call ourselves human doings we tend to define ourselves so much by whatever it is that we're doing in the moment and not necessarily how we're being and i think that in life you it's sometimes it's a struggle to be and you gotta you gotta fight for it you gotta fight for being present with your family it you gotta fight for being a good husband you gotta fight for being a father you know people fight for um, the job they have or the education they want or the rights they want more and more ever now we live in an age when people everybody's fighting for Something, some sort of cause. And so then the idea that to achieve that, you'd actually need to do the exact opposite feels entirely counterintuitive and counterproductive. Yet when it comes to faith, more and more I'm realizing that, that that's what you have to do. Over and over again in the Old Testament, um, you see stories where God tells people, go stand over there and wait and I'm gonna go do this for you. Uh, in, the, in Exodus, you know, it says, um, the Lord your God will fight for you. You need only to be still. And yet sometimes we think when it comes to faith that it's our job to defend it. It's our job um, to sort of uphold it. It's our job to protect it from the corruption of the world. Realizing more and more that it's actually Jesus's job To be faithful in me and to sort of strengthen my heart it's grace that strengthens me it's not me that strengthens me and yes i got to make myself available to it but god does all the heavy lifting in reality god cares more about my marriage than i ever could god cares more about my kids than i ever could and he wants those things in my life to win god wants you to win and so god's your defender the things that matter to you matter infinitely more to you maybe all you need to do is to be still maybe for the first time in a long time you got to slow down and that's really what this song's about the song is it's not about a you know coming from a loud sort of proclaiming place and lord knows i can be really loud this song is coming from a place of stillness from a place of and i've come to the end of, of what i can do And so I'm going to be still, and I'm going to go stand over there, and I'm going to declare this is what God's going to
0: do. Scripture says that perfect love casts out all fear, right? In the presence of love, fear can't abide. And so what is God? Scripture says that God is Love So literally in the presence of God, fear doesn't have a chance to abide because God's presence displaces fear. And so the more that we allow the presence of God to permeate our lives, the more that fear falls away. And so, so as we're, we're, as we're processing this, we're thinking about God's love and how it defends us and how it moves us and how it shapes us. And, and, and listen to what, what God's next words to, to Moses are verse 15. It says, when the Lord, uh, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the waters so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. I love how God is like, Moses, why aren't you doing something? You've already seen what I can do when you just take that staff and hold it up, right? Remember, you, you held it up, and, and then you threw it down, and it turned into a snake. And remember that after you picked it up, the snake's tail, and it turned back to a staff. And then you hit the water, and remember, all the water turned to blood. You remember that? Remember how you lifted up the staff, and there was another miracle? Remember how you lifted up the staff, and there was a... Why don't you go back to what you know you're supposed to do? Just lift up the staff, and trust me to make a way. Now, here's the cool thing. There is this, this crossing that's happening. And we read in, in 1 Corinthians earlier about how, how that crossing through the water is like baptism, right? F- following Jesus through the water. And there's this idea that, that there is a way out of bondage to freedom. There's a way out of bondage and to freedom. And and God wasn't waiting on all of the Israelites to have perfect faith. Do you notice that? He's waiting on one guy to do something. Moses, you know what to do, lift your hands. And Moses lifts his hands, and the waters part. And and I think there were probably people with different levels of faith in this thing. I think that there were people that are crossing the Red Sea, and they're like, whoa, look at this. You got the guy poking the water wall, like, look at this thing. Oh, there's a fish, you know? And he's just fascinated by the miracle that God's provided. Then I think you probably had some guys that were like, trying, you know, like, when's this thing going to collapse? I'm scared, right? No matter, but God still had a way of provision for everybody, no matter what their faith was, they just had to have enough belief to follow. He didn't call them to have great faith. He said, I just want you to follow. I want you to go across. Go, 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 go. And here's the cool thing. Not only does God bring salvation through the sea, but God brings the destruction of Egypt's army through the sea. So cool to watch God work. Matter of fact, if you, um, if you check out on YouTube, there's a spot where um, m- many archaeologists believe that the crossing of the Red Sea was. And if you, if you look, they send scuba divers down and they look, and there is coral growing on man-made structures. And some of the structures are like chariot wheels. That are turned on their side and the coral grows up like the axle and then around in the wheel spoke shape. And, and there's all kinds of things that the coral has grown on that looks like an Egyptian army was drowned there. That's cool. Those are the kinds of things that really fascinate me. I believe the Bible is true no matter what anybody else says. I believe the Bible is true no matter what anybody else does. But I always love to see when archaeology confirms the Bible. It's just fun. You're like, oh, wow, that's so cool, right? And so I want to I drive back to 1 Corinthians 10, and I just want to read this before we uh, have communion together. But it says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. And when I think about this, I was thinking about the same word in two different usage, uses, but the same result, okay? If you want to get from bondage to freedom, there's always a cross involved, right? Again, two different meetings, there's a crossing of the water but then there's a cross that's also a bridge to get you from slavery to freedom it's the same process it's faith that requires following that moves you past slavery and into freedom That's what God's design for us is. He designed you for freedom. So we got to stop thinking like slaves. Sometimes it's easy to allow our circumstances to dictate our attitudes. Sometimes it's easy to allow our circumstances to dictate our belief system. We think because this is the way it's always been, it's the way it's always going to be. How many of you have ever felt that way before? It's always been this way nothing's ever going to change. I've felt that way. There are times now when I wrestle with those kinds of things, where I wrestle with my belief because I'm like, it's always been this way. It's probably just the way it's going to go, right? What kind of thinking is that for a believer, right? Our whole, this whole thing is rooted in faith, in God's ability to do something beyond what we thought was possible. That's the point.
1: God is able. Amen?